Welcome to the Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 80. We're going to talk about Chiafalo versus Washington, decided just a few weeks ago on July 6th of 2020. The Supreme Court, as they often do, had the last word this time in a unanimous decision on rogue presidential electors involving the Electoral College, of course. Of course, we don't call them faithless. That sounds too judgmental. We prefer rogue electors. We have been covering this issue in depth for over a year now, I think. As you may recall, we have covered a couple of cases. There are two conflicting cases from last summer from lower courts that were in conflict. Now the Supreme Court has settled that conflict. We started in episode 48, a case out of Colorado, Baca, it was Michael Baca, versus Colorado, where Mr. Baca was a rogue elector in Colorado. And... The Colorado Secretary of State refused to count his vote. He was replaced. He sued about that, disputed that he should have been kicked off because he says he should not have been kicked off. And the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with him. Now, the other case in conflict with the Baca decision was Guerra versus Washington, which we covered the very next week after Baca. That was episode 49, where three electors did not vote for the winner of their state's Washington's popular vote. Their votes were counted, however, unlike Michael Baca's, but they were fined $1,000 each pursuant to Washington's statute. They sued for the $1,000 fine. Said, you can't do that. Constitution says we can vote for whoever we want. You can't punish us for using our constitutional discretion. The Washington State Supreme Court disagreed. They upheld the fine. So you can see the conflict. The federal appellate court says electors have absolute discretion when voting for president and vice president for that matter. And the states cannot bind them. They can't make them do something. They can't turn them into a rubber stamp. The Washington state Supreme Court says the states can bind them and punish them if they don't do what they are told by the state. So both of those cases were appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the same day, back-to-back, on May 13th of this year. Now, oh, when I say this year, for those listening 37 years from now, this year is 2020, so just in case you guys are listening in the future. And a quick aside about these oral arguments, this Supreme Court term was the first time in history that mere serfs like you and me could listen live to the arguments as they happened without actually being in the courtroom, which is hard to get into. I mean, the public's open, can get into it, but you have to wait in line. It's not easy to be there, I guess, for the popular or the controversial cases. But due to the government-mandated shutdown of the world in 2020 here, in response to this COVID-19 virus, the oral arguments at the Supreme Court were closed to the public. You couldn't get into the building to watch. And the court decided to hold virtual argument via teleconference. So the lawyers weren't there. I don't even know where the justices were. Nobody was in the uh, courtroom. And normally, uh, in, throughout history, when recordings were possible, these recordings were made available the Friday after they occurred. But they allowed the live argument for the first time to be streamed over the internet. No video, just the audio. And since the justices were apparently in their offices or in their houses, that's just as well. No one needs to see any of them in their pajamas or whatever. Now, assuming they go back to live arguments next term, like actually in the courthouse, many observers, court watchers, hope they continue to allow live streaming. Of course, I agree. And I think they should create C-SPAN 3 to show the federal courts, including the Supreme Court arguments when they have them. 
but we shall see. So prior to this Chuffalo case, which they just decided last month, the last time the Supreme Court dealt with rogue electors was in 1952 in Ray versus Blair, which we covered in episode 50. So we covered 48, 49, 50 these issues. And then we also actually interviewed Michael Baca in episode 60, I'm pretty sure. So we've been dealing with it. And now we know the answer what the U.S. Supreme Court has done. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Go to speakeasyideas.com slash the law and you'll see all of mine right there or most of them. We're getting all the archives uploaded. And follow this podcast on social media so you know what's happening whenever there's a new podcast out. We'll tweet it there at the law DKW and on Facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. So like those, you know the whole spiel. Help us get out, share them, rate, comment, all that kind of stuff. And I'd love to come and talk to you if you've got a group class, whatever, be involved in your cool projects, let me know. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com. For details, likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with DK Williams via a sponsorship. And if you've got a particular case you want us to cover, let us know and you can sponsor that episode. And as you know from listening to these earlier episodes on the Electoral College, I'm on the losing side here. I agreed with the two-to-one majority in the Tenth Circuit case in Baca. I disagreed with the Washington State Supreme Court opinion, and I agreed with the sole dissenter in that Washington State Supreme Court decision. And I think what the U.S. Supreme Court has adopted here, what, what they've done here, is they've adopted something that I think I created. I invented this phrase, but maybe not. I call what they are doing here, they are applying the erosion doctrine. The erosion doctrine, as I have deemed it, is that the Constitution can change slowly if it is ignored and eroded over 200 years or so by how Fed and state governments act about the Constitution. They can just slowly ignore it and it will therefore change, which is what I think the Supreme Court has basically done here. And and get, don't get me wrong, I'm not arguing the Electoral College as policy. I understand the history. I understand why it was created over 200 years ago. And I understand the arguments for why it's no longer a good idea. Okay, that's not what this is about. This is about what the Constitution says, what it meant at the time, and the process for changing the Constitution is pretty clear. It's been done several times. I don't like this erosion doctrine that I think they've applied here. I think there's lots of reasons to change the Electoral College or abolish it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what the Constitution says and what we should be doing. And if we want to change it, change it. But let's not do it by judicial legislation, judicial amendment, which is not how it's supposed to work. And as we've gone over in these earlier cases, it's clear that the original intent for the Electoral College was that the electors would have absolute discretion. But in some, Justice Robert Jackson in his Ray dissent, and yes, it's the dissent, he didn't win. But he said, no one faithful to our history can deny that the plan originally contemplated what is implicit in its text that electors would be free agents to exercise an independent and nonpartisan judgment as to the men best qualified for the nation's highest offices. But in Juffalo, U.S. Supreme Court says states can turn the Electoral College, their electors, into rubber stamps. So from Washington case, the named participants are Peter Chiafalo, Levi Guerra, and Esther John. And for some reason, the Washington State Supreme Court case had Guerra as the named plaintiff. When we did that episode, it was Guerra versus Washington. But now the named plaintiff before the U.S. Supreme Court is Peter Chiafalo. They're both in it. They're just listed separately or differently in a different order. The opinion in Michael Baca's case, which was also appealed, argued the same day as the Chiafalo matter, was... Very short, and it said, in essence, hey, this case was argued and briefed. 
but we decided it in Chiafalo. So go look at the Chiafalo case for the answer. That, seriously, that's what it says. It's like one paragraph. It says, go look at the Chiafalo case we're deciding today at the same time. So the Supreme Court tally here was 9 nothing unanimous, with Justice Thomas writing separately and concurring in the judgment, which means he agreed with the result that, yes, the states can turn their electors into rubber stamps, but he did not agree. He came to the result with a different rationale. He arrived at it a different way. He used the Tenth Amendment instead of Article Two. We'll talk about that in a, in a bit. Justice Gorsuch also agreed with part of Thomas's concurrence. So before we get into the gist of this, something occurred to me while I was reading the syllabus. That's the official summary. Some guy at the Supreme Court writes who has a nice government job, I'm sure. One of the points in the syllabus, and it is mentioned in the uh, in the case as well, the actual words of the case written by Lana Kagan, who wrote the case for the court. But one of the points is that the framers didn't reduce their thoughts about electors discretion to the printed page. So basically, the framers didn't literally write in the Constitution, electors have absolute discretion. They didn't write that. Nope, they did not. But compare that with a case we did last week that the U.S. Supreme Court also decided this same term. That was the Ramos case, Ramos versus Louisiana, episode 79, where they said they were clear about this. The Sixth Amendment, as they discussed in Ramos, doesn't expressly require a unanimous verdict in criminal cases. But the understanding of what the words, the phrase impartial trial meant was sufficient to mandate a unanimous verdict. So they didn't need to say, you have to have a unanimous verdict. They just said you need to have an impartial trial. So it seems a little bit like some legal analysis buffet going on. So the Supreme Court requires the specific language here. They didn't say electors have absolute discretion, therefore they don't. But in Ramos, they didn't require that. They said, oh, we all know what they mean by impartial trial. It means unanimous criminal verdicts. Here they say, oh, we don't know what they mean. They didn't, they didn't spell it out for us. Even though the words mean what they mean, especially in context of the time they were written. I mean, I, I can say a person died of starvation, but the Supreme Court can say, yeah, he died of starvation. That's what you said, but you didn't say he died from a lack of food. So you didn't actually mean that he died from a lack of food. And if you meant he died from a lack of food, that's what you should have said. But I said starvation. That's what starvation means. And the Supreme Court here, I submit, is at a buffet. Sometimes we want some white rice. Sometimes we want the brown rice. Sometimes using the word is all that you need. Sometimes you need to define that word expressly in the Constitution. Anyway. So Elena Kagan wrote the opinion, joined by everyone else but Thomas, like I said, concurring opinion, in which, of course, it's joined in part. So let's look at the language of the opinion. But first, as I like to say, don't take my word for anything. Read the case yourself. I always link to the actual text of the case in the show notes, so you can do that if you wish. Also, on that page where I link to the actual text of the opinion, you can listen to the oral arguments there, which is really kind of cool. So check that out if you wish. It's there for you. It's a resource if you want it. So Kagan, for the court writes, most states, talking about today, modern times, compel electors to pledge in advance to support the nominee of that party. This court upheld such a pledge requirement decades ago in Ray versus Blair. That's what she says in the unanimous court. Eight of them anyway, with not counting Thomas and the concurrence. Sign on to that. And we discussed Ray versus Blair in episode 50. But that's not what Ray said. The quote here in Chiafalo is, this court, U.S. Supreme Court, upheld a pledge decades ago. But she says the states compelled that. The states compelled the pledge. That's not right. The Ray case dealt with a political party and whether or not, in this particular case, the Democratic Party of the state of Alabama could require the pledge before someone could even run to be an elector. That's not the state. The state did not require it in Ray. The state did not require the pledge in Ray. The Democratic Party required it. And that's a huge difference. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, the Democratic Party can require that. They're the Democratic Party. 
But if some independent wants to run and he gets enough votes, he can win. Or some third party, if they want to run and get the votes to be electorate, they can win. But here we've got the state saying nobody can do it unless they not only make the pledge, but they're legally required to follow through on it subject to penalty or disqualification. It's a big difference, and they're just kind of glossing over that. Back to the court. Our Constitution's method of picking presidents emerged from an 11th hour compromise. The issue, one delegate to the convention remarked, was, quote, the most difficult of all that we have had to decide. Now, history is definitely important. We talk about that. But one random guy, what he said, may not be that meaningful. Individuals can say all kinds of off-the-wall stuff. You know, you probably can name some examples of it, right? And it's one reason I consistently criticize legislative history, which this basically is. You take one person out of however many, and you say, well, this guy said this, therefore that's what the entire body meant. Uh, That's a non sequitur. It does not follow. Any legislative body speaks by the words they put on the page, not by what one random person said. So the Supreme Court then quotes the actual Constitution, which is always a good idea when you're dealing with it, and they say, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled to in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. All right, so that's the pertinent part of Article 2. That gets amended in Amendment 12, but we'll, we'll touch on that. So if electors are just rubber stamps, like the Supreme Court is saying here, or they can be turned into rubber stamps, why couldn't a sitting congressperson be a rubber stamp? Just do the rubber stamp. If they don't have any discretion, why does it matter? Federal agents cannot be electors. Well, why does it matter if they don't have any discretion? They're just going to do what they're told. Well, that's because they had discretion and they didn't want anybody tied to a particular federal candidate to be an elector. They had discretion. That's why they didn't want to have those, those people with that discretion. They wanted independent people from the states not beholden to any federal official. And the history outlined in the Tenth Circuit BACA case makes it clear that the electors, electors were not just rubber stamps. The Supreme Court here covers the history of how the original Constitution was horrible when it came to electing presidents. We know that historically, right? We know that via the Hamilton musical. Because the first contested election after Washington was two terms, resulted in the president and vice president of opposing parties, and the two people could not stand each other. That was 1896 with John Adams winning and Jefferson coming in second and being the vice president. And then, just four years later, when Jefferson won, how it took 36 ballots in Congress to break the tie between Jefferson and Burr. So this procedure was not working, right? And so Congress and the states recognize that. They passed the 12th Amendment, allowing the electors to vote for president separately from vice president, which they didn't do before that. So that helped make that process a little more efficient. Now, Kagan and makes this popular culture reference about those 36 congressional ballots it took to break the tie and elect Jefferson as United States president. She writes, Alexander Hamilton secured his place on the Broadway stage but possibly in the cemetery too, by lobbying Federalists in the House to tip the election to Jefferson, whom he loathed, but viewed as less of an existential threat to the Republic. By then, everyone had had enough of the Electoral College's original voting rules. Yes, they did. And uh, whenever a Supreme Court opinion makes a popular culture reference, I wonder how well that it will hold up. Supreme Court goes on, within a few decades, the party system which George Washington warned about, but nevertheless, the party system also became the means of translating popular preferences within each state into electoral college ballots. 
In the nation's earliest elections, state legislatures mostly picked the electors, that's not very democratic, is it? With the majority party of a state legislature sending a delegation of its choice to the electoral college. By 1832, though, all states but one had introduced popular presidential elections. So it's decades later, decades after the Constitution has been written and the 12th Amendment has been passed, that things evolve. That's this erosion I mentioned. Within a few decades, that's what the Supreme Court talks about, that's the beginning of the erosion. The words haven't changed, but the way the states are doing things has changed. That's not the way the Constitution is supposed to be amended, not slowly through erosion over decades and centuries. But that's what's happened, in my view. The court goes on, by the early 20th century, you can see how this evolution, this erosion is occurring. They're kind of going, they're kind of laying it out chronologically. By the early 20th century, after the popular vote was counted, states appointed the electors chosen by the party whose presidential nominee had won statewide, again, expecting that they would vote for that candidate in the electoral college, all right? Expecting it, not knowing it, not demanding it, expecting it. And they would know if the electors had no discretion hey, you guys don't get a choice. You're going to do what we tell you to do. But they do have discretion. They did have discretion. And they are expected to use it a certain way, but they're not required to. So even in the Supreme Court's own Gioflo opinion here, they're making a distinction about, they're saying they expected it, and then they're jumping to, well, therefore it was required. That doesn't follow. The erosion continues, right? Kagan for the court continues. In the 20th century, many states enacted statutes meant to guarantee that outcome. That is, to prohibit so-called faithless voting. Again, I prefer rogue. Rather than just assume, she goes on, that party-picked electors would vote for their party's winning nominee, those states insist that they do so. As of now, 32 states and the District of Columbia have such statutes on their books. The erosion continues. The, the, the hole is getting bigger. We're turning it into the Grand Canyon now, which was the result of erosion. She goes on. Most relevant here, states began about 60 years ago. See, we're bringing it up closer and closer to modern times as things have just gotten deeper and deeper. States began about 60 years ago to back up their pledge laws with some kind of sanction. By now, 15 states have such a system. Only 15? That leaves 35, right? Seems to me maybe the 35 might be right. She goes on. Almost all of them, the court says, immediately remove a faithless elector from his position, which is what happened to Baca substituting an alternate whose vote the state reports instead. A few states impose a monetary fine on any elector who flouts his pledge. And that's what Washington did. They had the $1,000 fine. In Washington, the Supreme Court explains, all three of the plaintiffs, including Chirofalo and Guerra, all three pledged to support Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College. But as that vote approached, they decided to cast their ballots for someone else. The three hoped they could encourage other electors, particularly those from states Donald Trump had carried, to follow their example. The idea was to deprive him, Trump, of a majority of electoral votes and throw the election into the House of Representatives. So the three electors in Washington, and the plaintiffs in this case, voted for Colin Powell for president, but their effort failed. Baca in Colorado had voted for Kasich, I believe. So the effort failed. Court goes on, only seven electors across the nation cast faithless votes. The most in a century, but well short of the goal. Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court says, the Washington State Supreme Court relied heavily on our decision in Ray versus Blair, upholding a pledge requirement, although one without a penalty to back it up. And that's very important. A pledge without a penalty 
there's just a promise, right? It's the same thing. How many marriages every day include a pledge that eventually is broken without any penalty? And the original George Bush, remember his pledge? No new taxes. Read my lips. No new taxes. He didn't keep that pledge, did he? He didn't suffer any penalty. He had a pledge without a punishment. He wasn't removed from the presidency when he broke that pledge. The only penalty was political. It was the next election, just like it should be with these electors. You break your pledge, people are going to be mad. They are not going to be pleased with you. That is a political outcome, a political result, just like it was with George Bush the first. He was not held to that pledge by the state or any court or the federal government. He broke his pledge, kept on being president until the next election where he was removed from office by vote. Supreme Court goes on. In the state court's view, Washington State Supreme Court, Washington's penalty provision made no difference. Article 2 of the Constitution, that lower court noted, grants broad authority to the states to appoint electors and so to impose conditions on their appointments. Those are entirely different things. Selecting is different from directing. States have absolute authority to select their electors. That's in the Constitution, Article 2. States can select whoever they want, but that doesn't mean they have the authority to direct them. To give me a a little Johnny Cochran impersonation, the state may select, but they may not direct. Of course, I lose that argument, but I think I'm right, nevertheless. So they discuss the Washington State Supreme Court case, and then they say, a few months later, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit reached the opposite conclusion in a case involving another faithless elector, the Baca case. The Tenth Circuit held that Colorado could not remove the elector, Michael Baca, as its pledge law directs because the Constitution, quoting the Tenth Circuit here, provides presidential electors the right to cast a vote for president with discretion. And I think the Tenth Circuit is right. U.S. Supreme Court disagrees. And just so you all know, Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, recused herself from Michael Baca's case out of Colorado because she knew Polly Baca, one of the original plaintiffs and unrelated to Michael Baca, but one of the original plaintiffs in the Colorado case. And so because she knew an original plaintiff, she recused herself from the Colorado case, which made me think about before they made their decision here, what if given only eight justices voting because she recused herself, it was a four to four tie and they couldn't resolve it. And there's all kinds of bad things that could happen, but it didn't. So the Supreme Court granted cert to resolve the split between the Washington State Supreme Court and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. The U.S. Supreme Court says, as the state court recognized, this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has considered elector pledge requirements before. Some 70 years ago, Edmund de Blair tried to become a presidential elector in Alabama. Like all states, Alabama lodged the authority to pick electors in the political parties fielding presidential candidates. And the Alabama Democratic Party, the party, not the state, required a pledge phrased much like Washington's today. Again, that's not insignificant. The party is not the state. And I think the Supreme Court glosses over that there. Supreme Court goes on. Blair, the guy who wanted to be an elector but didn't want to make that pledge, challenged the pledge mandate. He argued that the intention of the founders was that presidential electors should exercise their judgment in voting. The pledge requirement, he claimed, interfered with the performance of this constitutional duty to select a president according to the best judgment of the elector. I think Ray's right, but he lost. Again, I know, I know, we're losing here. This erosion is a powerful thing. Supreme Court goes on, in this case, Truffalo, our decision in Ray rejected that challenge. Neither the language of Article 2, Section 1, nor that of the 12th Amendment, we explained, prohibits a state from appointing only electors committed to vote for a party's presidential candidate, nor did the nation's history suggest such a bar. To the contrary, the Supreme Court says, 
incorrectly, I think. History teaches that the electors were expected, okay, that's accurate, expected to support the party nominees as far back as the earliest contested presidential elections. Again, expected does not mean required. They're very different things. What good is a pledge that can't be enforced, you might ask? Again, I refer to George Bush first. Ask him about the pledge that was not for enforceable against him. And that's the punishment for breaking political pledges. You lose votes unless voters excuse the breaking of the pledge for whatever reason. But it's a political issue. Assuming a pledge must be enforceable is not relative to real life. It's a non sequitur. Most pledges are unenforceable. Nevertheless, the U.S. Supreme Court says we uphold Washington's penalty-backed pledge law for reasons much like those given in Ray. The Constitution's text and the nation's history both support allowing a state to enforce an elector's pledge to support his party's nominee and the state voter's choice for president. Again, absolute discretion to pick an elector has nothing to do with how mandating how that elector votes. Separate powers. Picking an elector, selecting an elector is different than demanding he do something. I mean, people elect U.S. representatives, U.S. senators, they pick them. But once they pick them, they don't have any power to make them do anything until the next election comes around and then they can either vote for them again or not. This is happens every day in politics. And I think the reason they're changing this, making this pledge requirement into something that is nowhere else in politics is because of this erosion. So the U.S. Constitution, in my view, and I mean, I don't see how this is really arguable, requires that all states have the absolute power of selection of their presidential electors. But it doesn't give the state any power to direct what they do. They can select, they cannot direct. Thank you, Mr. Johnny Cochran. Of course, the Supreme Court disagrees with me and Johnny. Kagan goes on here, and the power to appoint an elector in any manner includes power to condition his appointment. That is to say, what the elector must do for the appointment to take effect. That just does not follow. The court goes through some history and concludes. The point of all these examples is to show that although voting and discretion are usually combined, voting is still voting when discretion departs. So they're saying, yeah, the Constitution says electors can vote on a ballot. And one of the arguments the electors were making is that if you tell us what we have to do, we're not voting. But let this sink in. This is the U.S. Supreme Court in a unanimous decision. Voting is still voting when discretion departs. It's still a vote even if you have no choice. When you have no discretion, it's still a vote. What? North Korea would agree with that. The Soviet Union would have agreed. That is a frightening sentence. Voting is still voting when discretion departs. It's still a vote when you have no choice. That's what we have. The court goes on. For centuries now, almost all have considered themselves bound to vote for their parties and the state voters' preference. The Supreme Court goes on to admit that Hamilton praised the Constitution for entrusting the presidency to men most capable of analyzing the qualities needed for the office, who would make their choices under circumstances favorable to deliberation. Can't get much clearer than that, can it? But the court dismisses that and a couple other examples. Court says, but even assuming other framers shared that outlook that Hamilton had and some others, it would not be enough. Whether by choice or accident, the framers did not reduce their thoughts about electors' discretion to the printed page. So they're dismissing that history. Remember what I talked about with that language buffet? Sometimes the court will accept a word given its regular definition. Other times they want you to write that definition down before they'll give you the word it's meaning. That's what they're doing here. They say everybody knows what a impartial jury means, fair trial means. It means unanimous, even though unanimous wasn't written there. But here we've got electors still have a vote 
But they didn't say you can have a discretionary vote. I mean, they didn't write that down because it was obvious. It's not a vote if you have no discretion. But that erosion has taken that away. We lose on that. Me and the plaintiffs here. Court goes on. Almost immediately, presidential electors became trusty transmitters of other people's decisions. Okay, that's a politically expedient thing to do. And electors will usually do that. But that doesn't change the words of the Constitution. Just because I have discretion and 99% of the time I do A doesn't mean I don't have the authority to do B. Rogue electors were not contemplated to be a regular thing, and they have never been a regular thing. Most of the time, the state's popular vote would be followed by all the electors. The Supreme Court says electors have only rarely exercised discretion in casting their ballots for president. Right. And I rarely eat liver. But that doesn't mean I don't have the discretion to do so. I can or I cannot, even if I choose 99% of the time not to eat liver. In 1796, Kagan for the court says, the electors' declaration of support for a candidate, essentially a pledge, was what mattered. Yeah, and I know I'm beating the deceased equine here, but the electors pledge to vote a certain way. They pledge to vote. They don't agree to become a rubber stamp because if they're a rubber stamp with no discretion, the entire need for the electoral college, the entire basis for it is obviated. And I get people will not say that, hey, well, good. It doesn't make any sense anymore. That's a legitimate argument, but this is not the proper way to get rid of it. Or at least at this point, get rid of the discretion of electors. Pledges can be broken, sometimes justifiably so. They always have political consequences. And when our founders put in a specific provision, the electoral college, they wouldn't have done that if it was meaningless. But that's the result of this case. Also in 1796, Kagan goes on for the court. When the time came to vote in the electoral college, all but one elector did what everyone expected, faithfully representing their selector's choice of presidential candidate. That doesn't really help their argument. One of them used his discretion not to do that, and that vote was counted in 1796, excuse me. The court says, the history going the opposite way in favor of the Tenth Circuit and in favor of the plaintiffs in these cases, like Michael Baca and Chuffla, the history going their way is one of anomalies only. The electors, plaintiffs here, like Baca and Chuffalo, stress that since the founding, electors have cast some 180 faithless votes for either president or vice president. That's significant, but not to the U.S. Supreme Court. And all of those votes were counted, and the court retorts, basically, yeah, that's 180, but it's 180 votes out of over 23,000. Okay, that's the numbers. But the authority to use one's discretion a certain way has been rarely used If that authority has been rarely used, it doesn't mean the authority to use one's discretion does not exist. And it should exist for rare cases. That's why it was created, contrary to the court's ruling here. Kagan for the court concludes, the state, that's Washington in this case, instructs its electors that they have no ground for reversing the vote of millions of its citizens. Okay, that's just it. These rogue electors aren't reversing anything. The election was for them to vote for president. Otherwise, the Electoral College is nothing but a show, a pantomime, a vaudeville routine. And as much as I like vaudeville, the Constitution is more than that. The closing line of Kagan in the court. That direction, which is to do what you're told, to rubber stamp the popular vote. That direction accords with the Constitution as well as with the trust of a nation that here... We the people rule. And she puts we the people as like capital W, capital P. It's an obvious reference to the Constitution, right? But this is nonsense. We the people is such an overused phrase everywhere. When most people say we the people, they mean 
me and the three guys I drink beer with who agree with me. Well, we the people means more than that in an everyday usage. But here, it's being used completely out of context by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's like the court is saying we have a direct democracy. We the people mean we have we get to select the president. We don't vote for electors who vote for president, like the Constitution says. If we have a direct democracy, people we the people would really rule. But we don't have a direct democracy in many ways. U.S. Senate is hardly a direct democracy because Wyoming gets the same two senators as California does. And in the House of Representatives, the people in San Francisco get to vote on the most powerful person in the Congress, Nancy Pelosi, and 99.98% or whatever it is of the rest of us get no say in who that is. So we don't have a direct democracy. And in this we the people phrase here, we the people in the actual constitution is followed by in order to form a more perfect union, not we the people rule, which is what how they are using it here in this case. That's horrible. It's horrible. And I'm surprised so many other justices went along with that. So quickly on Justice Thomas' concurrence, he agrees the states can mandate the electors become rubber stamps, but he rejects their nearly 20 pages of reasoning in the, in the Supreme Court's opinion. He agrees with the result, but writes, I disagree, however, with the majority's attempt to base that power to require electors to be perfunctory agents and rubber stamp stuff. I disagree with its attempt to base that power on Article 2 the Constitution. In my view, Clarence Thomas says, the Constitution is silent on states' authority to bind electors in voting. I would resolve this case by simply recognize that all powers that the Constitution neither delegates to the federal government nor prohibits to the states are controlled by the people of each state. He's quoting a, another Supreme Court case, but he's basically, it's a Tenth Amendment argument. And I agree, that is a better argument than what Kagan and the other eight justices signed on, or other seven signed on with. But I still see the plain meaning of vote as requiring discretion and that the history behind the Electoral College backs that up. And to me, that is clear and obvious. But the Supreme Court here is allowing two centuries of erosion to amend the Constitution, and I do not believe that to be proper. Nevertheless, I ain't on the Supreme Court and I don't get a vote, and I wasn't even asked for any input. And the Supreme Court said otherwise. States can turn their electors, their presidential electors, into rubber stamps, which obviates the need for the Electoral College, making the entire thing wasted ink in the Constitution. And that's where we are. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 80, Chiafalo versus Washington, a unanimous decision from earlier this year on the Electoral College. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter, follow me at TheLawDKW and at Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, any of your cool projects. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode and would like me to cover a particular case, let Bethany know and we'll make that happen. Contact her at Bethany at speakeasyideas.com. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Dangerously.